Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian. This is Season 4, Episode 9. Today we're talking to the owner of Omnivore Books in San Francisco's Celia Sack. Uh, she has a wonderful bookstore, which is a touchstone for food lovers, chefs, and food writers in the Bay Area. And um, Omnivore Books is a really important bookstore here in the Bay Area. It's been around for quite a while, and uh, it's kind of a mecca for many people. When they visit the city, they go to Omnivore Books. They have a lot of book signings all the time, and uh, outside of quarantine, of course. And um, they're just a wonderful place to visit if you have a chance to. I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to Celia Sack. She was a wonderful, fun person to talk to, and I enjoyed getting to talk uh, books and cookbooks with her. So onward to the conversation. I hope you're all having a great day, maybe uh, sitting back and enjoying some leftover turkey sandwiches and uh, having a good time this weekend. Here we onward we go to the conversation. Welcome to the Well Season Librarian Podcast. Today, I'm very honored to have on my show um, Celia Sack, the owner of Omnivore Books on Food in San Francisco. Celia, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. So now, Celia, for our listeners who are not familiar with you or Omnivore Books on Food, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so I was a rare book specialist for many years at an auction house, uh, and I my specialization was modern literature, but you also became a specialist in whatever came your way. So I was like the rare golf book expert and, you know, whatever else came our direction, I became expert in, which was really, really fun. Uh, but then I really wanted to change. And my wife, now wife, but partner then, uh, started a dog walking service just as the dot-com era was getting going and got very, very busy and asked me to join her. So I thought it'd be fun to go from something uh, intellectual to something visceral. And we did that for 10 years and opened a pet store uh, and which we still have and she still runs, but we ran that together for 10 years. And then the space next door to the pet store became available and I decided to go back into the intellectual world. Uh, and so, you know, we wrapped up the dog walking service and I opened my bookstore. So that's, that's me. I grew up in San Francisco and have lived here other than college. I've lived here my whole life. Now, I'm a pet lover, so let me ask you, what kind of pets do yes. you have at home? Well, our dog, Jolene, actually just died a couple months ago oh, um, I'm of so congestive sorry. heart failure. Thank you. She was adorable. She was a beagle and lab mix. We called her a blab. And she was just a great, a great, great dog. And now we're we're thinking about getting another one. We're going to wait. Pro- hope We're trying to wait till after the holidays because it's such a busy retail season for both of us. But uh, it's really hard. It's hard to live without one. Uh, now, you worked at Pacific Book Auction, as you mentioned. You uh-huh. had worked largely with rare books. Can you tell us what that was like for you? Oh, so fun. It was such a great learning experience. It was my first job out of college. I used to um, have an internship at Christie's, the auction house in New York, uh, while I was in college for all four years. And so coming out of that, I really loved being in, in the auction world and uh, books was just something that I always enjoyed. I uh, had had a girlfriend who ran a used bookstore in the city and we used to love going book scouting together. So it was really fun to join that and learn about each field. You know, you really, as a cataloger of uh, of rare books, so you're writing the catalog, uh, describing the books, but you really have to learn about the subject to understand what's important about it, what makes it valuable, and what's going to make it sell for the most. So, you know, we would get like the archive of all of Henry Miller's letters and I got to read, or they were actually letters to him and um, writings by him in draft form. And, you know, I just got to read through all of them with the excuse that, you know, well, I have to find the best passages in these to sell them well, or we'd get a great you know, Civil War diary or uh, letters from the gold rush, things like that. And you just read through these things and go into a different time and place. And it was so, so fun. So, and every box that came in was like Christmas, getting to open it and see what was in it and understand and learn about each subject. So So I loved it. This wasn't just like, so this wasn't just like some books you knew that were valuable. They were like, these are some singular items. Yes, there were a lot of unique things as well as books that were just, you know, rare. Um, But yeah, you would get, 
you know, like we got some a really great collection of um, Emily Dickinson, and uh, you know because her very early books that were published just after she died were in small runs and the only people who bought them really were people who knew her. I mean, why else would they buy them, right? And so the the inscriptions or book plates inside of the books were often of people that she knew. Oh. Uh, and I had to I had to examine, you know, read through the biographies of her to understand what those connections were, because that was what made the book valuable was that connection. It's called an association copy when that happens. You know, what connected this person to her in real life, but it made me learn about the person or we got this huge collection of um, Yates. It was Jack Yates, who was the artist brother, but then there were also things by the whole, all of the siblings who had a press together called oh my God. Press. and so you uh. would learn you know and it would be like inscribed from Ezra Pound to WB WB Yates and the, the you know the, on one page but I had to learn about the relationship between the siblings what each of them did at this fine press and how they related to each other how they related to their parents you know it, I mean it was you know and other literary figures that they knew T.S. Eliot and um, you know, it, it just made my work so fulfilling because you really had to understand the full picture. You almost sound like you were an archivist in a way. Yeah, it was it was almost like that. And it was so fun because it was always coming and going. You know, you'd get in this one archive of like, oh, we got all of the letters that Timothy Leary's um, wife sent him while he was in prison. Oh my God. And it was like, I, and I didn't even know about it. It's, it's this great love story. And she would say like, you know, John and Yoko and I did our chakras together today. I mean, you know, just fabulous things in the letter. And I thought this is such a great love story. I can't wait to find out in real life how it turned out because she ended up breaking him out of prison. And you know what happened? The like week or month after they got out, he got, she broke him out after all these letters and all this waiting, he left her for some young thing and went off to Mexico with her, escaped to Mexico. And that is so perfect, right? But I felt like I knew her and knew them and understood her, you know, where she was at that exact point in her life. And it was just so fun to get to to be in that. And I think in a way, I mean, that relates to why I got so into the food world and food books is that food tells so much of the story of people's lives and, uh, you know, it gives you travel, it gives you um, persona, it gives you the, the place that, you know, or the, you know, anthropology of the food and the place. And it just tells you so much about where a cuisine was at a certain time, which tells you about the place itself. Like one of my favorite books that I actually decided to keep recently was a Nigerian cookbook from 19, uh, I think it's 50. I can't remember if it's 50 or 60. I think it's 50 um, by a Nigerian woman. Um, and she's pictured on the front, which is really interesting because she's black. And that's that was unusual for that time for a British publisher. Um, but she is teaching, uh, she really wants to teach young girls and young women how to cook, knowing that their parents and grandparents are probably going to make fun of them because she's insisting that they use um, measurements. And she says, you know, I know that your parents and grandparents didn't use and aunts and uncles don't use, or aunts, I should say, um, <laughs> don't use measurements like that for cooking, uh, but don't forget that they had many, many mistakes and a lot of waste early on in their cooking life. And you need to learn to, to not have that. And all the measurements are in cigarette tins. Uh, that's the measurement. And then the, um, you know, it shows how to make your own, if you're in the country versus if you're in the city, if you're in the country side, this is how you make uh, an oven out of an anthill. Oh my God. Or this is, I know. This is how you use two kerosene, um, uh, empty kerosene cans uh, with something across it to make your own oven and stove. And you can carve your own spatula. And here's how, I mean, it's totally fascinating. It tells you so much about the place and the time and the people. So it's not just about the food at all. It's just so much about where, where a country was at a certain point. So I love that. That's what drew me into that, I think, the most. Yeah, I, I've been reading so many books recently that seem to really, that really talk about 
the impact that food has had on our culture. And we're talking about it so much right now online on social media, um, who owns, you know, what, and uh, basically cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. And there's so many topics in food that are, that could be taught in like college courses right now. And yeah, and a lot are, a lot are, which is amazing. Well, I, I was reading um, the James Beard biography recently, uh-huh. and I was, I was saddened by it, I think, because it depressed me because it really, to me, was a testament to what it, from an outsider perspective, what it must have been like to be closeted and having to repress who you were for so long. And mm-hmm. I, f- I found that it gave me a different perspective of James Beard and it made mm-hmm. me really think more about him and like what he must have gone through, but it gave me a historical perspective as well. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I think we're seeing so many books about the South and the impact of um, slavery. And mm-hmm. there, just, there's been TV shows and stuff like that. And so much written about, um, I think, like just the women's, the women's movement and, and, and feminism and how the perspective has changed on like what was considered at one time women's work. And right. now it's not, you know. So. Right. I just got in a book called from the 1972 called Caesar Salads. And it was all about the, it was, it was published by the um, Farm Workers Alliance to, uh, to benefit Caesar Chavez and, ah, and nice. the food workers. And he actually wrote the intro to it. I could not believe it. I'd never seen it before. I was so excited, but there's so much connection between, you know, politics and, mm-hmm. and food and, uh, you know, righteousness. I mean, it, it's just fascinating. And I, I discover it more and more and more as, you know, as we go on. And it's been really interesting, actually, to be in this field for 13 years now, since I've opened the store and see the changes in attitude from publishers, the changes from, um, you know, from the authors and from the point of view of food writers. Um, and I have to say, it happens much more quickly than in other parts of life, um, which I can't say, you know, I can't say much more, much for. Um, there's like, for instance, uh, there was a realization during last year during Black Lives Matter that there are really no, actually no barbecue cookbooks in print by anyone Black, just none. And it was kind of a shock to realize that somebody had written to me and asked me if I had any, I realized I didn't. I started sort of a conversation on Twitter and uh, it turns out that the publishers were listening to those conversations and actually had one or two in the works, but now they're way more coming out. So there's Rodney Scott's barbecue, but now I've seen in the spring there, there's more that are coming out um, by black authors. And so it, it is really interesting that those those publishers are able to react fairly quickly and tend to, they, they're really interested in, uh, a publisher actually just took me out for lunch the other day to ask me about, you know, what's, what are areas that are missing? What are areas that, that we're not seeing publications in that we're not seeing represented and, um, you know, and what can we do about that? Which is really great that they want to do that and are able to. This is such an exciting time for food writing in general i just love this this is like almost like a renaissance right now i remember though like just when i was working in the 90s in a bookstore and it i mean i feel like it was starting then to take hold and there was some differences but it was different what was the crossroads for you that start that got you interested in the idea of opening omnivore books well I think, you know, I had always collected the books on food. When I was at the auction house, I I started out collecting modern literature, but I got really into the food books. And I always thought it'd be really fun to open a store that was all books on food, but I thought I'll never make it if it's just antiquarian books, because that's that's just not gonna get enough people through the door. Right. Um, and then I met this guy named Don Lindgren, who owns Rabelais Books in Maine. And it's a cookbook store. At the, at the time, he had a shop in Portland uh, that was open to the public, and it was new and antiquarian. And I met him at an antiquarian book fair in San Francisco, and we started chatting, and he he really inspired me. I thought, you know, if he can do this in Portland, Maine, I think I can do it here in San Francisco. And he also had some newer vintage 
not vintage, but like first editions that it hadn't occurred to me could also be collectible, like a first edition of Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan, signed, say. I was thinking of antiquarian like Mrs. Beaton's, you know, Victorian era and earlier. uh, And I thought, wow, you know, actually, I could sort of be a gateway drug for new collectors and turn them on to newer newer stuff that they can get that's or or collectible stuff that's you know from the 1960s or something that's or like that caesar salads book from 1972 that's not that not that separate from their own experience and yet are more valuable we can put them with you know i used to hate when i was a young collector and i would go into other bookstores and they would sort of give me the stink eye if i wanted to look at the books behind the counter and they were always sort of hidden away and you couldn't touch them and it was it, very uncomfortable until i start piling up what i was going to buy and then they got very nice to me <laughs> yeah that changed thing. Yeah. <laughs> it all changed yeah. but i thought you know i don't want to be that way i want to i want to be open I'm going to trust that people are not going to take the book and throw it across the room. They're going to be careful with it. And in fact, people are like, oh my God, I feel like I should be wearing gloves. No, 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 no. You don't have, it's rare, but it's not that rare. Go ahead and pick it up. Take a look. I have this pile of um, loose leaves from an herbal from the 1600s that I bought years ago at the auction house that I worked at. Um, and I sell them for $15 each, but it's basically, it's a whole herbal that's just been disbound. So each of the leaves is separate. But what's really cool is that a bunch of them have writing on them from the person who owned it, uh. who dated them 1710. And he would say like, found over ye bog in ye fen and ye meadow. And you know, it looks like this in whichever season. And then he would sign it. and. People freak when they look at that and they they love that this is 400 years old and that they're able to touch it and and see it and buy it for $15 if they want and frame it. And, you know, but just to look through it and have that experience for younger people, it's, you know, it's sort of like the opera. Um, If you don't get younger people involved, it's just going to die out. And it's really important. So it's fun to be that person that that opens them up to it. I think, do you think people have preconceived notions about cookbooks so that you kind of have changed their mind with what you have in your store? Oh, good question. Yeah, sometimes. Um, like I don't carry any of the of the ones from like Food Network people, um, the really sort of dumbed down ones. But, you know, people, it's not true to say that cooking isn't hard. Cooking is hard if yeah. you haven't cooked before. It, yeah. it is. But the more work you put in on the front end, the easier it gets as you go along, especially once you get to know techniques. So I think, I think that what sort of attitudes I've changed are that a cookbook can be simple, but not dumbed down. So it doesn't have to talk down to you to in order to and 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 simple doesn't necessarily mean a quick fried uh, tater tot. It's yeah. you know simple can also be a roast chicken, uh, but that you know learning how to do it and putting that work in is really worth it. And I mean this past year has been the year to tout that, and people have really because they've had to learn how to cook because all the restaurants are closed and it's worked people are people are totally you know getting into it which thrills me i love when professional chefs come in but i really love it when new people who have never cooked come in and want to get started it makes me so happy because i i I want to give them that confidence you know now talking about the quarantine um how does that affect your business because i know that a lot of bookstores have been have been really hurt by it has yeah has it i hurt think you? i think if i'd had a travel bookstore i would have really been in trouble but yeah. uh cookbooks we did just fine we actually did better than most years and i you know i feel guilty because a lot of my colleagues in the restaurant business suffered in the same degree that i did well for the same reason they were you know not working and uh, people had to learn how to cook but we did just fine and in fact got all of our books up online and we're shipping constantly and still are so it's amazing people supported us all across the country i always thought you know if 
if people are going to buy books online other than like, you know, I had my antiquarian books online. I had imports from Europe, things that are harder to get. Uh, I had online, but I didn't have like, you know, salt, fat, acid, heat or, or joy of cooking. I thought people buy that on Amazon. What, what, you know, what, what reason would they have to buy it for me if they're not going to come in and have a conversation about it? But I was totally wrong. People were buying stuff from Alabama, from Colorado, from all over the country for me. And it just felt so supportive and wonderful. And actually I've heard from most of my colleagues, at least in the cookbook field, we all have the same experience, which is really nice. Now you, you have a lot of um, support from the community here in the Bay Area. You, your store is very much a touchstone for foodies in the Bay Area. I've read articles about the support you've had from people in the Bay Area. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Oh, it's, it's so wonderful. I mean, they've supported both of our stores, the pet store too, which is called Noe Valley Pet Company. And it's, um, we've been there for 22 years, actually. Um, and, you know, just the, the neighborhood is so wonderful in Noe Valley. They are really supportive, but people also come over from, from all over the city to come to the shop. And I try to give back by having these free author talks all the time. Um, you know, we, that have food and drink and uh, you're not pressured to buy a book. It's just a, you know, just a nice thing that I can give back. I feel like it's really important to support local small business, Yes, but it's not, it's not an imperative. And I feel like small business has to also give something back to those people besides a great curated experience. Right. It's, you have to, um, show up, be friendly, be, you know, be attentive to what they need and also give back to the community. You know, I give a hundred dollars a month to 826 Valencia, which I realize now in my 13th year is $13,000 that I've given them, which feels really good to help tutor kids across the city, um, no matter what school they're in. Um, and, you know, I've done a lot of of things with the public and these free talks. It's like a free extended ed course that people can take if they come to, some people come to all of them and they're, they, it really is like a, a free college lecture almost. Um, so, you know, trying to give back and, and do things for the community is really important too. I don't expect people to just support me because I'm there. Now you've been open for 13 years. What's changed for Omnivore Books since you opened? Uh, sheesh, besides the pandemic, <laughs> well, I've gotten older <laughs> and I've gotten to be sort of the, you know, rather than the, the new kid on the block, um, I've gotten to be the grand dame a little bit. I mean, it's <laughs> so funny. You know, I met these, this wonderful couple in Washington, DC who opened a new cookbook store, um, just in October. And I went to DC earlier this year, uh, and met them and had lunch with them. And they, you know, were acting like I was this big, you know, like, oh, <laughs> Celia from Omnivore. And it's just so weird because I was like the, you know, I was 40 when I opened and I, I just felt like, you know, oh good, it's good to have some youth in the, you know, in this book business. And now I'm like, oh great, some younger people are opening <laughs> their stores because they're actually contributing to it in different ways. Oh, and now serving in LA open, which is owned by this great Filipina couple. And, you know, I love that. I love that they're, um, that they're uh, different. Well, they're Filipino American. So, but their background history is from a different culture, which I love. Uh, they're younger than me and they bring just a different perspective, which is so important. I mean, nice. I have to say the majority of us cookbook store owners, and there are only like six or seven in the country, but we're all white. We're all uh, probably middle-aged or older. And it's really nice to have some young people come in and um, I, I don't know if shake it up is the right word, but at least be there to continue the work that we need to do. And, and, with all of us, you know, we do have a certain power that I wasn't anticipating with the publishers. So many publishers have come in to look at design, at cookbook design in my store, but now they actually, you know, ask my opinion about titles, about... Um, That's uh, wonderful to hear. I'm really yeah. happy to hear that. 
Yeah, and and I'm sure that they're asking the others too, which is great. And the if they're not asking, we're telling. We're we're writing to them and saying, hey, you know. And people are worried about the publishers all conglomerating and getting bought up by each other. But each of the imprints do have their own leaders that we've gotten to know pretty well, and. Um, over the years, they've started to really trust our opinions and, um, you know, and we have collectively a lot of say about what gets published and whose voices are heard. And that's exciting. And, it, you know, it's really fun. I'm glad they're starting to listen. I don't feel like it's always been that way in the publishing industry. And the yeah. fact that they're doing that is just phenomenal. Yeah. Well, I think it's nice to be in San Francisco and get to know them personally. You know, they right. actually come in or we go out for lunch. Um, Aaron Weiner, who's now the head, uh, he's the publisher for Crown and um, Clarkson Potter and 10 Speed. And I are good friends. He lives nearby. Um, we actually used to walk his wife's dog <laughs> with the dog walking service. Nice. But, but we, you know, when we, when I started, he was just the publisher uh, and editor at 10 Speed, which was a small publishing house over in Berkeley. And then they got bought by Random House. And now he's really high up and it's, you know, a nice person to, whose ear I have occasionally to talk to about. And, and he can talk to me about stuff. I, he can help me understand, you know, why a certain book isn't published or why someone is popular or, you know, why a book I've never heard of is at the top of the list of bestsellers that I don't even know. <laughs> well, no, so. it's so smart that they're talking to you. I mean, really, it makes so much sense because who better would know, really, you know, so. Yeah, it's true. I mean, they're, they're, they're smart and they're open and they're, you know, they're oftentimes young too. And they're, you know, they want to see more diversity. They want to see more change and they, yeah. they don't love, uh, you know, I don't want to rat them out or anything, but they don't, they don't love being, um, you know, under the thumb of, like you know the decisions that Amazon and Barnes and Noble make. I mean, yeah. you know they want to they want to have an autonomy too, um, and so I think it helps them to have other voices besides those talking to them about what's needed. Like I was just saying to this woman Jenny, who I had lunch with the other day, that uh, they're like no cookbooks for South American countries and Central American. They're very few couple Brazilian, maybe one Argentinian, uh, one Colombian just came out, but there's like really, there's very, very little about each of those countries and certainly not as single countries. They usually do all of South America or all of, there's, there's really nothing on Central America except little paperbacks, old paperbacks that I find and I always sell them immediately. Right. So I was saying like, you know, hey, look that direction. There's, there's got to be a lot of stuff going on down there. Peru has an amazing food culture and they're totally into their own food history as much as Denmark is, you know, as much as the Scandinavians are. Go, go dig around there and, you know. I mean, we're seeing proverbial potatoes. We're seeing so many food influencers on like YouTube and TikTok and who cook different ethnic cuisine. I'm sure they wouldn't have a hard time finding people who are, we're like, yeah, I just happen to have a cookbook that we can publish right now, you know, for sure. Be pretty easy. Yeah. Now you have uh, in your, um, in your store, a mixture of antiquarian and new cookbooks and, and materials. Is that, is that kind of a, a stocking nightmare is that does that make it t no. difficult for you to keep inventory no it just makes it in difficult to have space okay <laughs> but but no like i got a great collection recently that is mostly at my house right now because i just don't have the space for it in the shop but we usually we usually have an annual sale and we haven't been able to for the past two years. And that, that usually clears out a lot of space, but because of the pandemic, it gets totally crowded and mobbed in there. So we haven't been able to do it for a couple of years. And so our space is, excuse me, pretty crowded right now, but I think it'll, uh, it'll clear up some after Christmas, hopefully. Now you have some pretty famous author signings. And I, and I know because uh, I was actually, um, talking to Rose Levy Berenbaum about this because she was, was you know, bragging that she's going to come to your store next year. And she was talking yes. about that. And I think that really kind of 
underscores the importance of your store because I, I have more than one of my guests have talked in rever reverential tones about your store. Like it's oh, like so this like special place. Everybody's like, you know, very respectful of your bookstore. Who are some of the authors that you've had on there that you've enjoyed and got to uh, meet through openings in your store? Um, okay, so I'm gonna answer you first. I'm gonna blow my nose. So okay, hold sure. on one second. We could edit that out too, so that's no problem. Okay, I'll be right back. All right, just at the end of a cold. <sighs> All right, so some of the people who have come who've, um, it's one really fun thing that I hadn't anticipated is that they've come enough times now that we've become friends, which is really fun. So we'll go out for dinner or oh, we got to go when we were in London last time, we went over to uh, Ottolenghi's house for dinner. Oh my God. And then we, I know. And then we went out for breakfast with Nigella Lawson. <laughs> oh like, okay, my is, God. I'm sorry. I should have opened years ago. I know. It was so I'm about ready to like go squee. <laughs> I know. Totally. It was such a blast. So, you know, those two um, have have been through Jacques Le Pen. Oh, we had a really great big event for Ferran Adria years and years ago. And I thought, you know, okay, now this... what was that like? That must have been amazing. Oh my God. It was so fun. So we rented out the Castro Theater, which is this big gay yeah. movie theater in the Castro. And, you know, it has an organ. It's just a fabulous spot for an event. And there are 1,400 seats and it sold out in 72 hours. People were so excited. He had just retired and people were so excited to meet him. Um, coming all the way from Spain. And uh, I got to introduce him up on stage. But before the event, he came over to my store for a little bit and was looking around. And then he said, uh, you know, my, my entourage and I want to go have a drink before we go to the theater. Where should we go? And I was like, where do I want to have free drinks for the rest of my life? <laughs> I know I'll send him to range. So I sent him to my favorite bar because I thought they're going to be really, really excited. And this is going to be such a, you know, a little crown on their jewel. And they were so excited and they made, they made him the whole meal and everything. Um, but it was just so fun to have him, uh, Let's see, Renee Redzepi came from Noma. We did another event there at the Castro. Um, God, Daniel Balud. I mean, we've just had, so, wow. though that was offsite. Uh, we didn't have him at the shop. Most of the people though, I really liked. So one of my plans was in the beginning, I thought it would be really good to have these authors come to the shop because even if it's, it's only a 500 square foot shop, it's tiny. So even if we can only get, 50, maybe 60 people in the door to, to a talk, they, that author will go and spread the word about the shop. And that's more important to me than, than selling more books and getting, you know, having a large space and a theater offsite. Uh, I remember in my first year, I had Michael Pollan and Alice Waters in one week. And I oh, was wow. so nervous. I just remember one night I just broke down crying because I just didn't expect that to happen my first year, you know, but all of them always say like Nigella had said, and I think Michael Pollan also that they were so unused to having such a small intimate space and being able to see people's faces and answer their questions and interact with them that way. They loved it. They really, really enjoyed being able to have that close experience. So, you know, then like the next time they come, we'll have it at a big theater or something, but, or we'll have an offsite event um, for them and then do a party for them at my shop or something. Um, and that makes it really, really fun. We've had Modern Joffrey and uh -huh. Kennedy and Harold McGee is a neighbor. He comes in all the time anyway he came in last week and I'm always forcing him to sign all of his books and he's very <laughs> nice about it <laughs> um and then he buys his own books and has me ship them to <laughs> that's kind of cool I know he's, he's wonderful so yeah I mean it's I it's just so fun and so great to meet meet all these people. I never got to meet Anthony Bourdain. He never came. And Nora Ephron. Those are two people that were big food people that I would have loved to have met. But oh God, yeah. I can't meet them all.
Yeah, you have a wonderful quote that I love. You said that um, cookbook authors are the new rock star chefs. Can you expound on this for the listeners? Oh, yeah. I just, I feel like there's an, an understanding now that cookbook authors, people who make their career about writing cookbooks, are getting really, really popular. And and sometimes they're first maybe popular on their, on like on the Bon Appetit um, uh, videos. And then, but for their cooking, rather than for their being sh- famous chefs. And they're able to write cookbooks really well because that's their career. That's what they they do for a living. And so you can trust, you know, restaurant chefs are wonderful. Uh, and sometimes their books are really, really great. But oftentimes it's, tr- it's like reading something in translation that right. you're just not totally sure that it's gonna be translated right. It's from a professional kitchen to a probably an author that's been assigned to write the book for them and to translate the recipes in smaller amounts. And oftentimes the kitchen is really busy and they're just they just hand the recipes to the writer and say, good luck, you know, translate this into the home kitchen. Right. And so it's, you know, whereas you know, Paula Wolfert, Diana Kennedy, um, Joan Nathan, Rosalie Berenbaum, Dory Greenspan, those people are incredible food writers. I mean, they they have been writing cookbooks uh, for many years, and that's what they do. There's one huge exception, which is my favorite cookbook that of of all time is the Zuni Cafe cookbook. And that's by Judy Rogers. And she was a chef at Zuni Cafe, but the way she wrote this book, it, it's not really about the food, you know, from that place. Uh, though it is, you know, California, French, Italian cuisine. Um, but she writes, she tells you why you're doing what you're doing in this poetic yet concise way that doesn't read as a scientific sort of guy's book. It's, but it doesn't read also as a, just heart. It's it's really about blending the two together. And so you understand she, you know, she tells you why you're steaming tomatoes, why they why when you're steaming tomatoes, why you need to crowd them together. She explains the science behind it, but she does it in this poetic way that um that just makes it a book that you want to take to bed with you. So she's the exception to the rule of of cookbook writers who make just the writing their career. Now, you mentioned before um, about how you really enjoy getting to talk to new people that come in that want to learn how to cook and how you enjoy introducing people to new things. Um, can you talk more about that and like, like you know, maybe some interactions you've had recently with some of your customers where you've kind of opened up something or when people say, I want a book on bread and you're able to go, oh, mm-hmm. let me show you, you know, because I know that's yeah. something I really liked when I worked in a bookstore. Yes. I mean, I love doing that. I love my, actually my favorite thing is finding the right present for someone. They're, they're looking yes, for a present for yes. their brother or their wife or their you know, a wedding. And I love it when I, you know, it's kind of sad when I get it right away because then they don't stay longer, but it's so yeah. fun to just be like, you know, that one. And, and I'm right. You know, I, I'm a good present picker um, and I'm a good gift wrapper. Now I used to think it was the curse of the lesbian to not be able to wrap, but I'm wrong. It just took years of practice and now I'm actually really good at it. Uh, so it's, but it's so fun to pick that stuff out, but yeah, getting the person, the right book. I mean, there was a couple in the other day. He was Czech and she was Romanian. They've lived here for many years and they're, they're married and they had never been in. And we just had such a good time talking. I got them to buy the Zuni Cafe cookbook among nice. like 12 books that they bought. They went crazy. Uh, they were buying Romanian cookbooks. They were buying cookbooks from all over. But the uh, the wife and I were just, she was amazing. She knew so much about the history of like, we were talking about dolmas and stuffed things and how, you know, or it started out in Romania as stuffed leaves of things, but then, you know, uh, moved over to Turkey and then they added rice. And, you know, I mean, she, it was so interesting to hear about 
the food movements and where they had gone and, you know, just get into why, what makes cookbooks good and what, you know, and what the right ones were going to be for her. And, you know, after talking a couple minutes about what people have liked, it gives me insight enough to be able to lead them to the right books that they're going to want. Um, I sold her one from Istria that just came out that's all about the coast of Italy and Yugoslavia. And it was just like sort of perfect for what she was looking for um, and and the type of cooking she does based on what we were talking about. So it, that sort of thing, yeah, it's just, it's a huge pleasure for me. Now I imagine you have quite a cookbook collection at home, am I correct? Yeah, I do. <laughs> It's mostly, they're, they're rarely books that I take home from, that are new. It's almost all antiquarian. I have a really great collection of um, sort of Raj era Indian cookbooks Whoa. that are really, I just got one uh, actually from my friends at Bold Fork Books in, in DC from Ceylon uh, from 1950. I, I just, I love those. Uh, and I've got a really great collection of Victorian pastry books. Oh. Those are so beautiful. And, you know, the ices and the cakes and, you know, I just I love that stuff so yeah but no. I did just bring home a really great one that's that's new that I helped on a kickstarter which I don't usually do uh I don't usually help kickstart something that's going to be a retail thing but I I just really was drawn to this book that is called Dining with the Dead and it's all about um rituals around Day of the Dead in Mexico and oh, nice. the foods that's around that and it's a beautiful book and they really go deep it's one of the finest Mexican cookbooks I think I've ever seen actually since Diana Kennedy tells you how to nixtamalize your own masa it's got you know things that I would probably never do but uh but it's just great to have an encyclopedic book like that so I I'm so proud of them and I love it and so I had to take one home for myself just to have nice it sounds amazing I bet yeah they would just be I bet you've got an incredible collection I'm I it's just, fun yeah. I have to say <laughs> now, outside of the Zuni Cafe cookbook, are there any other like favorite cookbooks of yours that you just like have read many, many times over and can't get enough of? Uh, huh, that's a good question. Well, The Art of Simple Food is absolutely wonderful, the Alice Waters, and it really is simple and and actually her vegetable and fruit books also are just, they, they don't have pictures and people sometimes don't like that, but they just work and they tell you what's in season when, and uh, they're very simple. I love those. Uh, I haven't read this one, but I, I feel ashamed that I haven't because it's so good. And my manager, it's her favorite book is the Marcella Hazan um uh what's it called essentials of italian cooking that is uh an absolute favorite of hers and is you know really the basis for all great italian cooking again no pictures but uh really wonderful and then another one actually that i do love i have never used but i have looked through so much is called senegal by Pierre Tiam. And what I love about that book is he, and is similar actually to what I love about the Dining with the Dead book. He traveled to um, Senegal and which is where he's from and really photographed not just the markets and the food, but the people who make it and profiles them and has them speak about how to make certain foods. And I just, really love the respect that he shows to the women and men in the country who are making the food. I think that's so important. And uh, oftentimes publishers will sort of go on the cheap and just use, like if it's a simple Thai cookbook or something, and they'll, they'll just, they never go to the country, but they, they try to find like uh, tableware that looks Thai sort of, and, you know, maybe plastic chairs and, and a colorful, uh, tablecloth and, and set it in a studio for the photos. And I, it, that's, no, that's lazy. Go, you, you know, put that in the budget and go. And the Senegal book just shows how much more you get out of, out of someone's trip that way. No, Brings you, you to that place. You bring up a good point because um, I've been talking to a lot of authors about food photography lately and how some of them are doing more of their own now. Do you oh. think that's really 
made a huge um, sea change in cookbooks right now, food photography? Yeah, I think so. And, but I, you know, I have to say the professional photographers are still really worth hiring. I mean, they're, they can just, it's subtle, but they oftentimes come in and criticize books that, that weren't photographed professionally and point out things that I would never have seen that, you know, certain things are cut off or it's too close or it's too far or, you know, they, they see things that, yeah, it's their job. I just like, I believe in, you know, hiring somebody to do my logo for me and, and, you know, design. And I can't, I can't do everything. And I'm not as good at that. And they can, they can say something about what I want to say better than I can. And I think that's also true with photography. It's, uh, some people are really great at it. And you can get away with that. Um, but I think it's really important to have somebody that knows what they're doing. Do yeah. the photos. I was uh, talking to Jenks Shamnazoy. Uh, and he was saying that, you know, I was like, I was surprised that like, did they just let you do your own photography? And his is impeccable, of course. I mean, it's uh, beautiful. But um, he's like, yeah, they did, didn't have any problem. I'm like, really? They just let you do it? And I'm like, yeah, didn't give you any I think they're happy to. They're happy to not spend the money. And that's, it's unfortunate. They just, they, you know, I think that, well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. But I, I recommend to anybody that is uh, doing it, unless you've really taken a lot of photography courses and know what you're doing, that it's, it's so great to also just to have somebody else's point of view about something. I mean, you're, you're so in it for your, with, with your own point of view, with your own writing. And, and that's really important. But sometimes it's really nice to have somebody else with you that sees maybe something that you didn't wouldn't have thought of or sees something that you didn't see. I love, uh, actually, I shouldn't say I love collaboration. My wife would laugh me out of the room. <laughs> but, but I do love collaborating on um, on imaginative ideas and ways to make the business better, the store better. You know, I don't trust just me to make my store the way it is. I, I want my employees to also have ownership in that way and say, yeah, I think it would look better if we did this or, you know, put this here over here. And I, I love hearing that. That's great. And they're oftentimes right. And I'm happy to, to give into that. What's next for omnivore books? Um, <laughs> getting through Christmas. <laughs> That's our, this is our crazy, crazy. Oh time. yeah. Getting, oh yeah. You know, all the publishers have been late getting things out and, and everything is coming like on the same day. And so it's just been a real challenge with our, with our limited space to, uh, to get everything in and to ship it out. We're doing a lot of pre-orders, uh, getting back to in store live events. And I'm really hoping that publishers don't get used, so used to these virtual events, uh, which we actually have not been doing, but all the other cookbook stores have been, um, and they're, I just don't want them to be lazy about sending people. One of the great things about having uh, now serving in LA and book larder in Seattle. And then me is that there are three cookbook stores on the West coast. So that gives a very good excuse for publishers to send authors out here and they can just do the whole coast. So I really hope that they continue to do that. So we'll, we'll keep doing more live events and get back to, you know, finally taking off our masks and being able to greet people again and all that. You just touched on something that I, I actually forgot to list in the questions, but it was, yeah. um, I know so many authors recently who've had to cancel tours because the books got pushed back and it's yeah. been a, kind of across the board issue with this. Has this affected your store? Oh, totally. Yeah. People have canceled because of that or because they were coming out here for a conference and we're going to add the book, you know, a book event and then the conference got canceled and so they canceled. So we actually stopped. I said, stop printing um, our schedules out because we just keep having to cross things out and change them and then just throw them all away. So it was like, you know, no more, but it'll end, you know, no, this, this November now is, is partway through. We're, we're done with adding events for the rest of the year because we don't put any in December. And so, you know, hopefully by next year, it'll clear up some. 
Hopefully. I'm crossing my fingers on that. Hopefully. <laughs> and I should wrap up because okay. uh, I need to get going. But do you have, did you have one more question? Just well, yeah, one last question. Uh, so yeah. do, you, do you cook yourself? Oh my God, all the time. People ask me that. And I'm like, you know, this would be a really depressing career to have chosen for myself if I hated to cook. <laughs> I love yeah. to cook. <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, I, I like, to, I mean, I don't like to assume, but yeah. I guess yeah, it would be, no, yeah. I, I do cook. I love to cook. I cook all the time. I don't use cookbooks as often as, uh, as I might because I've gotten pretty confident about riffing. But that said, there are certain books that I really love to use that, uh, inspire me in new directions. Alison Roman's books are are some of them. The um, uh, Dining In and um, her next one, which all of a sudden is escaping my brain. But anyway, uh, nothing fancy. Those are great books because she combines ingredients that I would never have thought of before to go together. So I like to be inspired by things like that, or like a you know, a, a book from like this Dining with the Dead, the Mexican. It has six different pozoles. Oh. I really love the pozole I make. That's what I made for Nigella. The idea is when someone like that comes over <laughs> or Autolange, make something with a wide fuck up range that they have no reference for whatsoever. And Southwestern yeah. food, it turns out the British really know nothing about. So yeah. for both of them, I made, I made Southwestern dishes. But yeah, six different pozoles. And so, you know, I can't wait to learn those. So yeah. I'm getting. I'm, I'm totally getting that cookbook now. I wrote that down while you're talking about good. it. It's on I'm my like, website. I'm getting it's all that. On my website. Good. Yeah, One last question. Uh, what's the strangest yeah. recipe you've seen in a cookbook? Oh right, mayonnaise cake. Ah. Yeah, Brody. That's um, disgusting. And it, it calls for everybody. Everybody disagrees with me. I posted it on Twitter, and people were very defensive. They said that's really just you know eggs and oil, and that goes in anyway. And uh, but to me, I wouldn't name it mayonnaise cake. And also, it takes it has canned tomato soup in it. No. Oh just, no no I'm no! I'm sorry. No. I, it's you know maybe they found it good, but I I just can't do it. I can't I can't do it knowing that that stuff is in there. Yeah, yeah, I would I would be like, oh, I, I hear somebody calling. I gotta go. I gotta exactly. go. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That was from the 1950s. So oh, it, yeah. you know, it's not like currently a, a thing, but ugh. that's a whole era of unusual cooking, I have to say. That's right. That's right. It's pretty disgusting. <laughs> well, Celia, it's been wonderful talking to you. I've really enjoyed getting Same. a chance to talk to you. I could talk to you about this stuff all day. Same. I could too. I'm sorry that I have to leave, but this was really enjoyable. So, and, yeah. and an honor to be on here. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you again. Same. That was my conversation with Celia Sack, owner of On Aurora Books. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, please, you owe it to yourself to visit On Aurora Books. Uh, the information for the website for the bookstore is on the biography page. So on Monday, we're going to be having um, writer and chef Taffany Elrod, who will be talking with us about working in the food industry, working with food and writing. Uh, tune with us on Monday to talk with Taffany. Um, on Friday of next week, we'll be talking to Rayshawn Parker from Beyond the Check podcast uh, and Beyond the Check um, on PBS, uh, his television show. Uh, wonderful to get a chance to talk to Rayshawn, and I think you're really going to enjoy talking to him too. So until then, I hope you all have a good weekend, the rest of the holiday weekend, and I hope to see you next Monday. And um, until then, happy cooking. <laughs>